You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. Today's show, we sit down with Sandra Spielberg, who is the founder and CEO of Adnexi, a disease intelligence platform for the next generation of biopharma treatments. Prior to this, Sandra was the founder and CEO of Seeker Health, a breakthrough digital patient finding platform which accelerates drug development and commercialization for biopharmaceutical companies. Seeker Health was acquired by Eversana in September 2018. She's also the author of New Startup Mindset, a book on her non-traditional founder's journey and lessons learned starting, building, and exiting a company. On today's show, we talk about what questions should a founder or founder team ask themselves about the company before starting it? How important is positioning one's company and the temptation to take venture funding and the positives and negatives of going down this path? This and much more today's episode. And Sandra offers our guests a special offer. If you write a review on iTunes, take a picture and message me. We'll put your name in a raffle to win a copy of her book, New Startup Mindset. All right, now let's start the show. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Thank you for taking the time today to be on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now, I'm super excited for you to be here. I, I mean, I have your book right next to me and I've already read it. And well, let's just say I'm too excited to not start this right now. So Sandra, to give our audience a little bit of background of who you are, can you tell us your career briefly up until this point? Sure, I'd love to. So I always think of my career starting when I was an employee at my father's hardware store. He had one of these mom and pop hardware stores where you went to get cable or paint or, you know, sort of consumables, that kind of thing. One of the really important things he taught me was to delight customers. That was his whole thing, right? Find out what the customer needs, give it to them with a smile, help them come back to our store again. Of course, years later, we immigrated to the United States of America. My mom, my dad, my brothers, and I. We came to Brooklyn, New York. I continued my education there, graduated from high school, went to college, and then decided to get the type of job that an immigrant should have, like a really solid, stable job. So I studied accounting. With accounting, I got a job on Wall Street, first in audit, then in financial control. And then pretty soon I realized that I really liked accounting, but I didn't want to do accounting for the rest of my life. Decided to get an MBA to transition hopefully into something related to biotechnology or technology, an area that was innovative and exciting. And that's what happened. I went to Wharton. Then I ended up interning at Genentech, the mother of all biotech companies. Wonderful internship. And then I came back and continued working at Senecor. It's a Johnson & Johnson biotech company. Biotech was a great area for me because here the products really are helping someone, right? And that was really important to me. What I'm working on somehow needs to be related to a value. It has to have some value for someone that is receiving it. Biotech really provided that along with, of course, lots of innovation to go along with it. Then after that, moved to the West Coast, started my job at Biomarin, which is a biopharmaceutical company. Back then, it was a small biopharmaceutical company going after their first approval, their first drug approval. I was part of the marketing department. And that was a wonderful experience. I spent nine years at that company. Really, I feel like those were like my formative years from a biotech experience. And then I noticed that I wanted to go to smaller and smaller companies. So I went to this startup called Nora Therapeutics. 
And Nora was developing a few drugs for uh, fertility treatments. There is where I noticed that there was an incredible need to find patients for clinical trials. That need wasn't well served in the market, especially for small companies and especially for companies working in rare diseases. It turned out that Neurotherapeutics decided not to pursue their product any further. So I was actually out of a job and I was going to smaller and smaller companies. And so I decided, you know what, this is the perfect time. I'm going to start my own company. That's when I started Seeker Health. Seeker Health was a patient finding platform to find patients for clinical trials, specifically for rare disease. And initially, I started the company by providing a service. And then I grew that service into a platform that was more scalable. I had this opportunity to start, build the company. And then I started getting acquisition interest of several companies that were looking to go into this market. They were looking to either buy or build. So they were exploring the buy option for them. I ended up selling the company. The company was acquired by Eversana, which is a large life science services conglomerate in 2018. And then I went into the integration process with them, which was great. That was about a year and a half. And now I'm back out. I had learned so much in this process of starting, building, and exiting that I was really motivated to write a book. And that's why I wrote this book, New Startup Mindset, 10 Mindset Shifts to Build a Company of Your Dreams. One of the things I realized specifically in that time was that I had done almost everything differently than this Silicon Valley formula, in quotations, and that it was important for me to show other aspiring entrepreneurs, current founders, a different way to do it. So that's why I wrote the book. Okay, there's too many things to talk about right there. Your acquisition, your exit, how you did something not conventional, not the Silicon Valley normal path, but your company, I mean, you started it, you built it, you exited it. You went through all those paths. Can you go into a little bit more detail about those different areas, those different phases of your company's life cycle? Love to. Start is very much embracing the sense of being a beginner. Of course, I was bringing into this company a knowledge of clinical trials. I was bringing my experience in biopharmaceutical, as well as my contacts and my connections in that area. There was so much that I didn't know, and there was so much that I didn't even know that I had to know. In start, it was all about embracing this beginner's mindset that about half of the things that I was going to show up to do every day, I had never done before. And that that was going to be perfectly okay because I can learn, right? Growth mindset. I can learn how to do these things. I can figure them out at some point or another. So that was very much... Start also has this feeling of like, you really don't know if this is going to work, right? We're just trying to figure it out. In Start, really, one of the key things is to find the product market fit, right? What is it my customer really needs? I think my customer needs patients to enroll in a clinical trial. I think they want to find them on social media, but how do I really turn this into a product that they want to buy and they want to buy it now, right? Without a lot of competition. So that's what's happening in Start. In Build, by then, we solidified a product market fit. Hopefully, we have a product that we're taking to market. And now we are replicating that process of selling and delivering the service product. Build becomes sort of more of this marathon, right? Where you're trying to get more and more customers to buy what you're offering, continuing to get feedback from them and adjusting as needed. But really, it's more of like a replication effort of like, this year, we had 10 customers. Next year, let's have 30. The next year, let's have 50, right? And so forth. Exit is its own whole thing. And it's a very exciting process. I think it's the process that requires incredible 
self-clarity as to whether or not this is the right time to exit the company. I exited my company in year three. It's considered generally relatively early. It takes much longer generally to build a company. For me, I really had to go through this whole internal process that was facilitated by a coach where I'm thinking through, is this the right time to exit this company? Or do I want to continue building it? Or do I want to bring in other financing options into the table. There's sort of this component of parting at some point with a creation and letting it live on its own. So my company, Seeker Health, now lives on its own without me, which at some point would be considered an impossibility, right? How can this company operate without me, (laughs) its creator? But at the end of the day, I think the exit is all about that. It's enabling the company to operate without the founder. Even before the start, build, exit. Were there any times where you're asking yourself questions about the company? And what were those questions? And maybe, I mean, does founders teams, should they ask themselves questions before they start? Yeah, absolutely. I think you should definitely ask yourself some questions. I think probably the most important question to ask yourself is, am I the right person to start this company at this time? Right. So is this the best way that I can add value to someone else at this time? And I think for me, that checked out to be yes. I had the half of the knowledge that I needed, the clinical trials, the biopharmaceutical contacts. And of course, I was missing the other half. And all founders are always going to be missing the other half. That's one of the most important questions to ask. Am I the right person to be doing this today? Is this the best way that I bring value to others today? And what about the team? What questions should you ask the team members? Team members are super important, especially those first few people that you hire. They end up becoming basically members of the family. (laughs) For those team members, I was looking specifically for a growth mindset. Like similarly to what I'm speaking about today, I was looking for people who were looking to learn, who were excited about the mission of the company, and who would perceive trying as a great thing to do. You could fail when you try. That's okay. We get up, we learn something, we dust ourselves off, and we keep going. That's mostly what I was looking for, this growth mindset. A couple of other things that I started looking later on, one of them has to do with energy disposition. And it's sort of like a bit more unusual way to read someone. But what I'm looking for is a centered energy disposition. And that's in contrast to either spilling your energy all over the place. There are a lot of people who are very enthusiastic and they sort of start spilling their energy all over the place. And it doesn't land very well on the team, especially on a daily basis. The contrast to that is somebody who is withholding their energy and is sort of like apathetic and removed. And so neither one of those are generally great team members, right? Because for the apathetic, the team is trying to get them to like get a little bit more excited and more involved. And for the person that's spilling their energy and is overexcited, The team is sort of looking at them sideways being like, what are you on? And what's wrong with you? Like, are you in touch with reality? Like, this is a startup. Like, we have a great chance of success. We have a great chance of this maybe not really going the way that we all think of. That's another thing that I started looking for. And then the third thing is towards the end, we use the DISC, which is a tool that is used to basically assess the personality of somebody in a work setting. And what's important about that is that generally we want to create a balanced team. And so to do that, we need to understand, well, what am I? So I generally tend to be a driver, somebody who's really focused on goals. 
and somebody who is an influencer, who wants to influence people, use my words, use my presence to influence. I need a counterbalance to that. And the counterbalance to that is somebody who is generally a more conscientious person who's going to think more about like the complete wholeness and the wellness of, of the organization. And so as I was hiring people, I noticed that intuitively, I tended to hire those people that would be my complement, right? That would be my opposite. They were bringing that to the table as well. I've never heard anyone talk about the energy and the overflow. Disc, yes, I have heard, but not this energy. That's is pretty fascinating. I mean, most of the startup founders I come across, it's we were friends in college or we met at work or met at some event and we decided to form a team. But the way that you really pictured the importance of all the different personality traits in that, fascinating. You have your team, you're moving forward to that first client. Now you haven't had any sales yet. What was it like going into that first client meeting to sell your company to them? What was going through your head? What did you learn in that instance? Yeah, I think that first meeting was part terrifying, part super energizing, and part the best learning experience that I could ask for. I'm in front of a group of customers, not unlike if I was trying to pitch a group of venture capitalists. It's just that here they happen to be members of a company that wanted to consider our product to buy it, to use it for their purpose. I say terrifying because, of course, it's sort of like a high stakes type of situation. And I always say, startups, you sometimes only need one or two things to go right. But if you have like a bunch of things going wrong at the same time, it could be really demoralizing. So here was my first customer. I really, really want this to go right. Right. So that's kind of, I think, where the terrifying part comes because I wanted to go right. Also, it was extremely energizing because here I am. What I created, right, what the team is creating, what I'm creating is now in front of a legitimate company who is actually considering this for use the best learning experience because every question that they ask me during that meeting becomes something that now I can build right into the pitch deck, into the product, sort of to preempt the questions. And after I've done a couple of those types of meetings with customers, then whatever I'm presenting is a lot more solid. So I was looking at it, this first meeting, mostly as a learning opportunity for me to say, well, what does this customer need? Where are we getting stuck on questions? What else do I need to build into my service and product to make this go smoother the second time around? That first customer bought what we had to sell. And not only did they buy it, they used it for two years, right? So they were one of my longest standing customers because usually clinical trials turn over. So generally, like our product lifecycle of enrolling a trial might be more like six months to nine months. But they ended up using what we sold to them for over two years. Okay, so you land the first client. You have traction. I'm guessing at that point, angels were coming up to you, possibly venture capitalists going, hey, take our money. What was happening there? Did you want to take venture capitalists at that time where you say no? What was going through your head? Because I mean, most companies, even before they have that first customer, are already out there pitching for investors. I didn't pursue that route at all. I wanted to build a revenue-generating, profitable company. That's what I was after. I designed a service initially that became a platform and that service generated revenue right away. And the revenue for that service was more than enough to cover the costs of the people that would deliver the service. When that question that you're asking became really, truly relevant was about six months into the venture where we figured out that we had to really offer an entire platform. We couldn't just offer the service. 
the service was part A of a three-part process that we had to offer to our customers. And so that's when I needed to go build software. Building software is not inexpensive. So I had to go hire a couple of software developers to go do that. And that was the moment. But for a second, I said, well, should I go out to venture and show them we have some traction? At that point, we had six customers. We had revenue coming in. We had a pretty solid monthly recurring revenue we could count on as well. I said, well, should I? Should I or should I not? I decided not to for many, many reasons. I I write all the reasons in the book. I'm going to highlight a few just here. One of the reasons is that it didn't seem to be a good use of my time. I had at that time a close friend who was also starting a company, and he had to go on 70 meetings to get two venture capitalists to give him funding. Now, here I'm an immigrant woman, first-time founder. So how many meetings will it take for me you know, to go on? If he had to go on 70 to get two, then how many do I have to go on? Maybe it's not true. Things are changing. and It's very dramatic, I think, the change that is happening right now in terms of investing and investing in female-owned businesses. To me, it just didn't seem like a good use of time. It seemed like instead of approaching 70 venture capitalists, I should approach 70 biotech companies because my win rate was much higher there, right? And they would actually pay me money to deliver the service without taking any equity in the company. And so to me, that seemed like a much better deal. The second part of it was that at the end of the day, venture capitalists are looking for a return on the business. And that was one aspect of what it meant to create this startup. But the most important aspect, the main reason why I was doing this was more mission-driven. Like I wanted to create a technology that would bring efficiency to this process of finding patients, especially those with rare diseases and cancer, for these clinical trials, because these clinical trials end up producing life-saving medications. And the quicker we get that clinical trial enrolled, the quicker that drug reaches that patient that might need it. I was willing to make some trade-offs there in terms of what the return needs to be, because there was another return to me, which was making an impact, making a difference. That was very interesting about the whole time versus return. I mean, I've talked to founders in the past that have had 200 meetings with VCs before they landed that investment. And if you think about it, you have the hour meeting, you're driving back and forth, the introduction, the time. There's hundreds and hundreds of hours put into these meetings where maybe if they had used that time for customers, they would have been in a whole better position. Okay, you have customers. Now you're looking at your competitors out there. How did you go about finding your key value proposition in an existing market? The main aspect there was to really think very carefully through positioning the company and through the segmentation that was available there. And there was a very interesting dynamic in the market that I started to find out by actually talking to my competitors and trying to get as much information as I could to understand where they were operating. And here's the dynamic. Most of the companies that call themselves clinical trial enrollment, they didn't want to enroll rare disease studies or cancer studies. Why? Because they were harder. They were more difficult to enroll. They wanted to enroll depression studies. Pretty much everybody has depression. They wanted to enroll asthma studies. That's one that they wanted to enroll because there's so many patients and they're much easier to find. That became part of the attribute that helped us differentiate. We were focused on enrolling, right? Finding and enrolling these patients that had rare diseases, maybe think one in 10,000, one in 200,000 patients, those that had cancer. Both of those were areas that were sort of, our competitors were like, we're not touching that, too difficult. And so here comes a startup and says, 
we're going to go right in there. And rare diseases to me was not scary at all because I had worked in rare diseases, right? Biomarin and Nora Therapeutics were both rare disease companies. I had worked in them combined for a period of 10 years. I knew what these patients needed. I knew how motivated they were to be in a clinical trial when many of them have very few options for treatment. That's what really helped the differentiation. So sort of the bottom line is there might be competitors in the market, but look very carefully because there's usually a portion of the market that they don't want to serve. It's either maybe they don't want to serve very small companies or they don't want to serve very large companies or they don't want to serve companies that are doing this type of program or that type of program. So that segmentation becomes really crucial to do early on to say, well, we're going to play here where these people don't want to play that much. Then therefore, our competition will be less until they wake up to the fact that this is a thriving market. How important is it in, as a startup to position yourself? What insights, what advice, thoughts can you share on this? This is super important, I think, to position the company because many times when we see the success stories, right, like Facebook, the Googles, the Zooms now, we think that they work for everybody, right? That they provide their service for everybody that is out there, right? All 8 million people in the globe. That is not true, especially when you think about how each one of these companies begins. Even Facebook, it began on college campuses, targeting a specific age demographic, targeting a specific behavioral profile. It's very important early on to find that group of consumers, that segment, that acts the same way and is most likely to adopt the product or service as fast as possible. All companies should do that, especially in the beginning. Once you start to grow, you can say, well, okay, like for Seeker Health, we were really well positioned for emerging biopharmaceutical companies working in rare diseases and working in cancer. Well, now that we're growing, we can grow. We can go after Pfizer. We can go after those others. But it's very important in the beginning to get traction, quick traction in a group of customers that really needs what you are offering today. Now, many startups, I mean, they want that funding so they can go out and hire as many people as possible. They want to grow a team. In fact, a lot of people brag about, hey, I now, you know, I'm going to increase my company by 20 employees next quarter and we'll have 100 employees by the end of the year. It seemed like you did the exact opposite approach. You tried to keep it as small as possible. In fact, I remember hearing you're hiring blank slates. Now, can you talk to us and give us a little insight of your hiring and once again, do the opposite of everyone and instead of grow as fast as possible, keep it as small and as, I guess, family as you did. Let's start with blank slate. Blank slates are these individuals that perhaps do not have all the experience that is required to take on the job, but they're smart, they can learn fast and they believe in the mission. And they think that working at this company is a good thing to do with their limited time on this planet, right? So that's what I consider a blank slate. Probably the opposite of a blank slate is an adult in the room, which is where a lot of the startups at some point tend to hire very expensive managers, that leaders that are going to know what they're doing because they probably have done it before. Because I was bootstrapping the company, I certainly didn't have money to hire adults in the room. <laughs> but I didn't want them necessarily either at that stage in the company. I found that the blank slates, these people that were really hungry to learn, were really excellent growing with the business. And to some extent, what we were doing at Seeker Health wasn't really being done anywhere else. So it wasn't like I could find I could write a job description that said, I need this prior experience and that prior experience would exist. It really didn't exist. 
the end of the day, blank slates was what it was all about. Now let's go to the numbers. Every time I would go to these sort of like startup or founder type of meetups, people would always ask me three questions. How much money did you raise? Zero was my answer. Who did you raise it from? No one. And then how many employees do you have? As few as possible. There's sort of like this sense that more employees mean more traction. There is a perspective that if you are building a company and now you have all these seats filled, that now the company can move much faster traction in the market. But it's not always right. I was trying to build here a revenue generating, profitable company. So for me, it was very important to keep the team small, to give them really broad jobs, jobs that would make them really excited that they were learning so many different things in this job that they could take on, of course, to their next step in their career. That's really what I was looking for. So that's why the team was small. Okay, now let's move to the exit, that acquisition, because you were getting a lot of offers at this point. What did that process look like? How did the conversations even start? The first conversation started with a former colleague who was running a marketing communications firm. He approached me and said, we are looking to go into this clinical trial patient finding space. We are interested in seeing what you have with the intention of contemplating acquiring it. I went through a whole process with them, the letter of intent, the beginning of due diligence. And then towards the end, we started pitching this product together as sort of like a practice run of what the eventual marriage would be like. It wasn't sticking, like something about it wasn't quite working out. So at the end of the day, they decided to walk away thinking that Seeker Health's revenue weren't moving as fast as they wanted it to move. That was sort of the excuse and that they were going to postpone and come back to me. And I said, let's not postpone and come back to me. Let me just be out of this exclusivity agreement. Because around that time, I had gotten a second inquiry, a different company, similar background to this company, who was also interested in acquiring Seeker Health. I flew to them. And then we did this whole wine and dance, getting to know them, getting to know the company. They put together their letter of intent. And there were certain terms in that letter of intent that I really didn't like, right? At that point, I said, you know what, I have to take a pause. And it happened to be that I went to this conference where everybody was talking about these executive coaches. And I had never had an executive coach. But I said, you know what, this is probably the perfect time for me to get an executive coach so that I can think through whether or not this is the right time to sell Seeker Health. First question, is this the right time to sell this company that you know I'm creating, I'm still building? And then two, if it is the right time, then what would be the terms of this agreement that would make it minimize my seller's remorse. So that, those were the two objectives. I started working with Charles Rose, who's an executive coach. And we went through this entire process. It took a number of weeks to sort of sort out through everything that was related to, is this the right time? Is it not the right time? From an emotional, physical, financial, and spiritual perspective, looking at what happens if I sell Seeker Health now versus what happens if I wait another year, continue to build. And at the end of that, exercise, I came to the conclusion that we had built something of value. I was working very hard at it and that this was a good time to entertain these offers. So that was answering the first question. And then we worked on the second question. Well, if all went well, then what do I want offer to look like? And I think the main lesson there is to really ask for what you want because this deal is only consummated once. You only get to sell this company once better meet sort of all the needs that are sort of dreams or expectations. And so some of them were financial, of course, and some of them 
had to do more with practical things like where the company was going to be, where these employees going to be retained and maintained with jobs, which was important to me because they had obviously dedicated three years to working at Seeker Health and I want them to continue to have jobs, things of that sort. And then I was ready now to negotiate. (laughs) I didn't know if a, a third company would come along, but a third company came along. Once they asked what I was looking for, now I was completely prepared with a list of points communicated that to them. I didn't hear any strange noises, right? They didn't hang up on me. Then from then on, we went on to negotiate the letter of intent first. Then we went into a due diligence process that took about three months. And that due diligence process is a very important process. I write a lot about it in the book because I love founders to know what they need to do during that time. And then the agreement was drawn up, signed, the wire was made, and now Seeker Health belong to Eversana. And then I went on to help them integrate the company. So let's go back. You'd mentioned something that I want to dive into. You said you hired an executive coach. Now, I haven't really talked to any founders that have done this before, but what was your experience hiring an executive coach? Would you recommend it for other founders? When would you recommend it? And just give me some more feedback on this. I'm really curious. Yes. An executive coach, I think, is fantastic when there is a big decision, a big inflection point to think through. And it is important to have a person who can act both as somebody who can help you think through all the potential issues, the potential situations, the benefits, and also help align that to some values. The executive coach is not a lawyer, it's not an accountant, right? But in my case, one of the reasons why I hired uh, Charles Rose was that he had been a startup founder. He had sold companies. And that's what my question of the moment was. Do I want to sell? What does it mean to sell this company? And if I do, then how do I want this deal to go? Hiring an executive coach, I say yes. Definitely, I would hire again an executive coach. I think it's important to choose somebody who's walked in your shoes before because not everybody has sold a company. Not everybody has started or built a company. So I would say it's very important to choose somebody who's walked in your shoes before. It's the timing of that is when you have one of these milestone decisions, one of these important decisions. Less a fan of having an executive coach at all times that becomes more of like corporate psychologist. It can work. I mean, it might be nice to have that space to talk about the issues that are going on. But I think it's really effective when you have a specific question you're trying to solve together. Everybody stays really focused on that question. And then all the work that is being done between the coach and the coachee are for resolving that question. And now the transition phase, the company was acquired. Kind of what were your roles? What were your employees? Because you'd mentioned it was very important for you that the employees still had jobs after. What was that? transition period like, that integration period? Yes. The first few months, we continued sort of operating as it was and then set the goals for the integration. Mostly the goals for us were in the beginning to transition all the back office to the acquirer. So HR, accounting, tax, all of those things, acquirer would deal with those things on a global basis because they had many other companies and employees that they were working with. And the second part that was really important was how do we extend the power of Seeker Health to the current customer base, right? Our acquirer was a large acquirer, had many, many customers that could use what Seeker Health had. That became the main point of the integration. 
And then the final piece there is that there was also technology to transfer to the acquirer to make sure that they would continue to develop our platform and continue to invest in it. I would say like third workflow that was there. All the employees retained their jobs. We also hired a couple of other people. We hired, we began to hire the adult in the room. And now that we were in a bigger company, that those adults in the room can then begin to take some of the work that I was doing, managing the team, and they can inherit that work and continue it. That was the integration. It's interesting, you know, it's sort of like, it's seeing my creation, the team's creation now be in the hands, right, of sort of like a more stable, bigger parent. That's kind of like the feeling to it of like, here's, here's a bigger company that is incredibly more stable than a startup, even three years in, who will take this and now will grow it. I did that for about 18 months, and then I left in April of this year. And you'd also talked about the due diligence being very demanding for being acquired. Can you talk a little bit about what happened in that due diligence process? Yes. After the letter of intent gets signed, generally, the companies will begin their due diligence workflows. And generally, due diligence is in both directions. The acquirer will do a very extensive search and audit, basically, of the acquiree. But then the acquiree also gets to do some due diligence on the acquirer to make sure, let's say, that they have the cash that they're talking about to acquire your company and so forth. I'll speak mostly about what I had to present to the acquirer. Think of these workflows as a complete audit of your company. Anything that's pretty much ever happened to the company that has a signature somewhere needs to be presented back for review. There is a way to prepare for this from the beginning. Five years into the company, it's sort of too late to start organizing all of the information that is needed for the due diligence. But if we, we're doing it as we're going along and building the company, then it's much easier. Choir is going to be looking for all the formation information, right? The articles of incorporation, anything that had to do with stock issuances, with directors, with minutes, all of those things. They're going to be looking at the technology itself if you are selling technology and auditing that and seeing if they can make, can continue to grow and maintain it. Um, they're going to be looking at every contract that the company has ever engaged in. They're going to be looking at every employee. <laughs> they're going to be looking at every invoice that has ever been sent out of the company and into the company. Basically, bottom line for founders is that it's really important to be organized, right? This information needs to be organized from the beginning. It's really difficult to go back five years, even three years, and then put all this together. So from the beginning, organize your folders. You know, in my book, you have the list of what you need to keep and have these folders set up already so that when a data room right, gets set up for your due diligence, you are just simply moving folders over, right? Wouldn't that be a dream? Going back to your book, there's one part in it I remember that you said, allowing yourself to be found. Can you talk a little bit more about what you meant by this? It means that you are out there, right? Some, in some way, you are out there showing what your company is doing, showing what the company stands for, showing some of the progress that the company has made so that companies can find you. I mean, for the most part, the acquirers that came my way found us in some way in the market. The first one, of course, I had a, more of a personal connection, right? So he already knew that I was working on this. That's a different story. 
companies number two and number three in my case, and then the number four that came about found us in the market. We were either going up against them, you know, trying to win similar business, or we were working with a company where they were providing a different service. So we had the same customer and we're providing service A and they're providing service B. So they found us in the market. So that's what I mean by allowing yourself to be found. Be visible, allow others to find your company. Now, Sandra, I also have to ask, since selling a company, you've written a book, now you have another company. How is it different now from before where that first one you formed, I mean, you bootstrapped and it sounded really like you had nothing in the bank. Whereas now after your last company, I'm guessing, I don't know the exact terms of your exit, but I'm guessing you're in a better financial situation starting the second company. What's different? Everything. (laughs) Pretty much everything's different. I turned around, couldn't really sit on a chair. After exiting my company, I had to go do something else. And so I had this other idea for a disease intelligence platform that's now called Adnexi. And I went ahead and I started this company. And pretty much everything's different because with this one, I do have the luxury of taking more time to develop a product that can be a platform right away. And so that's what we're doing. We're skipping through the let's provide a service first because I need money to come in to buy the developers. We're skipping through that. And instead, we're saying, let's develop a platform. Let's put in the work to develop a platform first and then take it and continue to maneuver it until it finds its right product fit. So I think that that's the major difference. At this point, I'm still bootstrapping in the sense that it's our own capital and our own sweat going into it. Hopefully, very soon, we'll start having some customers to bring revenue into it. And in the past, I interviewed Sam Wong, who talked about mindfulness of a startup founder. What was your experience? Because in your book, you also talked about the mind-body burnout. Can you elaborate on this? Mindfulness is incredibly important. I'm a huge uh, fan of the topic. And I think when I reflect back, at the same time as I was growing as a company founder, I was also growing my abilities to be more mindful and use the right tools to reach that mindfulness. The job of a founder is pretty intense. You know, it's, um, it's lonely at times. It's incredibly demanding. It is full of uncertainty. It has so much uncertainty that it is prone to create anxiety, right? Because anxiety is generally that, not being able to control the future or know what's going to come. Mindfulness becomes incredibly important for founders to find a way to calm down, to relax, to be in the present moment, to appreciate what that moment has to to give us. This is a long road. It requires daily, weekly, and monthly recovery. And mindfulness is part of that recovery. Huge fan (laughs) of mindfulness. I think the more that we practice some of these tools, the better we are in approaching what's in front of us. Basically, at the end of the day, As founders, we're trying to use our time, our body, our skills to create something. And that creation process is intense on its own. There is no way to do it in a way that isn't intense. And so what we need to recognize is that it is intense and that we need recovery from it on a regular basis. The best part about this book is, from my understanding, you're already thinking about your next book that you're going to write. Now, we are going to have to get you back on for the launch of that. But For our listeners out there, can you give us some little teasers maybe of what you're thinking of writing about and the knowledge you're going to share? Sean, I have three ideas. (laughs) That's my problem. I have to choose one now. 
One is a follow-up to this book called Founder's Dilemma. And in that one, I want to go deeper into some of these key decisions that founders make early on in the setup of their companies and help bring some data, help bring some examples into what the choices are and why would you make one choice versus another, right? These are things like, should you have a co-founder? Should you raise capital? Should you run a profitable company or spend all the money that you get, right? Like what some of these key decisions that you make early on, of course, many of them are changeable, but sort of thinking through how to make those first decisions. That's number one, still in the startup world. Number two is completely different. I wrote many years back a memoir about immigrating to the United States of America. It's a memoir is sort of like, you know, my feelings and my thoughts on this incredible change coming from Uruguay, a tiny country in South America, to Brooklyn, New York, and sort of being assaulted, right? My senses assaulted in, in every perspective and sort of documenting what's happened from then and, and the, the growth, mostly the internal growth that has happened to deal with a massive change like that. So that's a memoir. And then idea number three, which I've been really into lately, is all about inner journeys. We're recording this episode during coronavirus. Most people cannot be as social as they want to be. And so there's a great opportunity to turn all that time and energy and go inward. This book, I would describe seven different techniques to go inside of yourself to find generally that wiser, deeper part of you that sort of knows what the right answer is in most situations. But many times, we're too busy listening to that part. That's the third idea, Sean. Well, I look forward to finding out which one of those three you choose or if you decide to launch all three on the same day, who knows. But if anyone wants to find out more information about you, kind of follow your journey and get on a pre-order book list or that, what's the best way to go about doing it? Yes, I have my website, sandraspielberg.com. Lots of information there. And of course, the book is out wherever books are sold. It's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, everywhere online. Those are great ways to learn more. And for our listeners out there, Sandra has given us an amazing gift. We do have a copy of her book that we're giving away to an audience member who writes a review on iTunes about this. Could be positive or negative, but a review, please be positive. And take a screenshot, email it to me at sean at the Silicon Valley podcast.com. We'll put your name in a raffle and the winner will get a copy of the book. So with that, please share amongst your network. It encourages us to create great content like this. And Sandra, I have to thank you again for your time here on the Silicon Valley podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It was great to be on it. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only and is licensed by the Investors Podcast Network. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. 